The Sixth Book, Forbidden Fruit, Chapter 28. To leave Gangaji aside for a moment, though that, as you can see, Ganapati, is never easy, you see how he keeps taking over our story. Let us return to his wards, the new political, new parental princelings of Hastinapur. They have not featured in the episodes I have recounted so far from Gangaji's career for the simple reason that they were not there at the time. Though to say so would probably be considered heretical by the numerous devotees of each today. Our contemporary hagiographers would have us believe that Dhritarashtra with his dark glasses and his white stick was everywhere by Gangaji's side in the struggle for independence and that until he disagreed with his mentor, so was Pandu. Well, Ganapati. You can take it from me that they were not. For most of the crucial events in Gangaji's life and career were those in which he acted alone, resolving the dictates of his hyperactive conscience within and by himself. Not that his followers, our later leaders, were entirely idle at this time. After all, independence was not won by a series of isolated incidents, but by the constant unremitting actions of thousands, indeed hundreds of thousands, of men and women across the land. We tend Ganapati to look back on history as if it were a stage play, with scene building upon scene, our hero moving from one action to the next in his remorseless stride to the climax. Yet, life is never like that. If life were a play, the noises off stage, and for that matter the sounds of the audience, would drown out the lines of the principal actors. That of course would make for a rather poor tale. And so the recounting of history is the only order we artificially impose upon life to permit its lesson to be more clearly understood. So it is, Karapati, that in this memoir, we light up one corner of our collective past at a time, focus on one man's actions, one village's passion, one colonel's duty. But all the while, life is going on elsewhere, Ganapati. As the shots ring out in the Bibigar gardens, babies were being born. Nationalists are being thrown in prison. Husbands are quarrelling with wives. Petitions being filed in courtrooms. Stones are being flung at policemen. And diligent young Indian students are sailing to London to sit for the examinations that will permit them to rule their own people in the name of an alien king. It is no different for the protagonists of our story, the little band of individuals and families selected from the swirling mists of an old man's memory to represent a past in which others too have played very significant but unrecalled parts. Time did not stand still for them as Ganga plodded through Motihari or starved to such good purpose in Bajbaj. No, Ganapati, our friends too lived and breathed and thought and worked and prayed and, except for Pandu, copulated the while. Their endeavours unrecorded in the words you have so laboriously transcribed. History marched on, leaving only a few footprints on our pages. Of its deep imprints on other sands, you do not know because I do not wish to wash in the waters that have been swept away. In other words, Ganapati, as our story unfolds on your notes and my little cassettes, Pandu and Dhritarashtra were working busily in Hastinapur, in Bombay, in Delhi, to organize and promote, respectively, the institution that would one day propel Gangaji's vision into a tangible nationhood, the Kaurava Party. At first, 
their paths did not diverge. Indeed, were it not for Sritharashtra's unfortunate affliction, I might have said that they inevitably saw eye to eye. Till my blue-blooded scions entered the fray in Gangaji's wake, the Kaurava party had been a distinguished but remarkably ineffective forum for the rhetorical articulation of Anglophile disaffection with the English. Brown-skinned Victorian gentlemen, often in three-piece suits with watch chains strung fashionably across their waistcoats, bad enough for cultural, climatic and aesthetic reasons, but to make matters worse, Ganapati, this was decades before the advent of air conditioning, declaimed in the language of that ignorant imperialist Macaulay and in accents that overrated oligopoly, Oxbridge, their aspirations to the rights of Englishmen. England listened, but paid little heed. The Kaurava party was a useful outlet for the frustrations of the English educated, but since these always expressed with the restraint born of English education, they posed no threat. The party had, after all, been founded by a liberal Scot who had named it in a fuzzy misreading of Indian mythology and dedicated it to the perpetuation of his monarch's constitutional queenship over India. The radical idea being the adjective constitutional. When Gangaji turned to politics, the Kaurava party had been in existence for 30 years and the British had not taken 30 steps towards Indian self-rule. With the advent of my Hastinapuris, all this changed. Dhritarashtra, for one, as you already know, Ganapati, had acquired in England traces of the right accent along with streaks of the wrong ideas. He had returned fired with Fabianism, which taught that equality and justice was everybody's right, and which, with typical imprecision, omitted to exclude the heathen from the definition of everybody. The Fabians had drawn up an all-embracing philosophy in order basically to make the point that it was the state's duty to provide gas and tap water to the British working man and while the British working man rapidly moved on to less elemental concerns, the philosophy travelled to distant peoples who had never even heard of gas or tap water. Dhritarashtra was one of its carriers. He heard speeches aimed at prodding Westminster to help the workers of Wigan Pier and drew from them the conclusion that it was also the duty of the government of India to serve the common Indian. Such a thought had not, of course, crossed the minds of those who had set up the government of India for the fun and profit of the indigenes of Ipswich. So that Dhritarashtra found himself drawing the corollary that the Indian government could only fulfill its duty if it were a government of India run by Indians for the welfare of Indians. This modest proposition, Ganapati, took him far beyond the previous precepts of the party. It was a doctrine persuasively and passionately argued by the unseen visionary. Within a short while, he had captured the ideological heights of an institution low on ideas. He did so, of course, because Gangaji's spectacularly unorthodox successes had shaken up the sterile verities of the party's past and opened it up for capture. In the old days, the only, if sporadically, effective nationalist actions had been the bomb-throwings and the mob agitations from which the party elders had shrunk away. Now, in the actions I have described, and in innumerable others like them, Gangaji demonstrated that you do not have to be a hooligan to be effective. Non-violence, voluntary coating of arrest, even fasting, these were more acceptable to offspring of respectable families. 
Constitutionalists could hardly object to one who worked within the laws and willingly accepted the punishment for their violation. Gangaji's methods stoked the fires of true nationalism among those who had recoiled from violence and lawlessness. It was this warmth that welcomed Dhritarashtra when he began to preach to them. He found them ripe for conversion and the Hastinapur connection bathed him in the light reflected from Gangaji's halo. If Dhritarashtra's socialist beliefs went beyond anything Gangaji himself had never expressed, there was never any question of the great teacher's endorsement of his sightless protege. The Kauravas were left in no doubt that Dhritarashtra was Gangaji's man. At the beginning, so, of course, was Pandu. In some ways, he might have been a more natural heir to Gangaji, which his scriptural reading, his personal faddishness, his, albeit enforced, celibacy. Gangaji indulged Thritarashtra and relied on Pandu. It was Pandu who took the party banners to the most remote villages, while Thritarashtra toured the lecture halls and the meeting rooms of urban India. This was perhaps inevitable, given both Thritarashtra's strengths and his handicap. But it did mean that while Pandu trudged in his dhoti through the mud and grime of the countryside, while Pandu led the proletarian processions of stoic satyagrahis on defiant dharnas, while Pandu took the blows on the head from the lathis, the long wooden arms of the law, Thritarashtra endured little more than the hoarse barbs of bribed hecklers. The strain of long speeches at mass meetings, the long nights dictating pamphlets to adoring scribes. It was Gangaji who determined, who ratified, who sanctified this division of labour. As a result, Dhritarashtra was before long the most famous Indian leader after Gangaji, while Pandu's following was confined largely to the political activist who had toiled with him in the villages. When, years later, Duryodhani spoke darkly of the imminence and unrivaled sacrifices that her father had made for the nation, I would think of my poor Pandu, by then long turned to ash and almost forgotten, poor, tough, scarred, calloused Pandu, with the smell of sweat on his brow and the dust of India on his sandals. And I would muse, Ganapati, on the injustices of fate. Of course, Dhritarashtra too made sacrifices for the nation, his cause led as surely to prison as Pandu's, and both spent years inside British jails. If anything, Dhritarashtra's sentences as a convict of conscience amounted to longer than Pandu's. But he turned his incarceration to profit, dictating books and letters, and letters that would become books later. Throughout his stay, as a guest of His Majesty, works that revealed again and again to the world his depth of learning and breadth of vision. Prison confined others, but in Thritarashtra's case, it only confirmed his reputation as India's leading nationalist after Gangaji. The regularity with which each of his spells in prison resulted in a book led one colonial cartoonist to depict him in the dock addressing a judge. Why did I break the law? Well, Your Honor, my publishers were getting impatient. Was it inevitable, Ganapati, that Pandu should become disaffected? Your ponderous brow, your unblinking eyes offers no answer. The inevitabilities of history are for ideologues and fatalists, and I suppose I have belonged at one time or another to each category. Yes, Ganapati, it was inevitable. 
I watched them both, my flawed, gifted sons. I watched them from afar as a humble Kaurava party worker in the plains. I watched them from nearer as a more distinguished ad hoc member of the party's high command. And I saw the inevitability of their separation. Pandu became impatient of Dhritarashtra's oratorical certitudes, his lofty convictions and his vaulting ambition. Dhritarashtra, in turn, had little time for Pandu's atavistic traditionalism, his political earthiness, his pride in his wife's five boys. Those who have no sons rarely attach any importance to the priorities of those who do, but they resent them deeply. If Gangaji saw any of this, he showed little sign. He carried on as oblivious as always to the dilemmas of others, doing nothing to heal the growing rift.